Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, December 13th, we are studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. Paul concludes his section of teaching to the Thessalonians with a list of instructions concerning their lives as Christians. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz is the Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Pastor Kuntz, as we get geared up for the text that we've got before us today, give us some context in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Where has Paul been leading up to this point? Paul is strengthening new Christians who were converted through the preaching of himself um, and others. That's recorded in Acts for us. And he had to depart from Thessalonica under duress, under persecution. And he's been concerned about them. So he's written now to them this first of two letters that uh, we have in Holy Scripture to the Thessalonians. And he's trying to stabilize their faith. Uh, you know, if you think about faith as a kind of, you know, bowl and it's sort of rocking on the edge of the table, it's about to fall over. He's worried and he, you know, wants to put his hand out and keep it stable and safe, keep it from breaking. There are a lot of dangers that the Thessalonians are subject to uh, affliction from outside uh, persecution, but also false doctrine and uh, false living within their own congregation. So there's, there are a lot of obstacles. There's a lot going on, as there is in any congregation. And uh, Paul wants to make sure that they stay strong in the faith. Um, so he started out by praising their faith, praising their way of life, uh, and then began to give some instruction, especially concerning the coming of the Lord, which is why it's so great to read this letter in Advent. Yes, it is. So how does, I mean, how does this text then, go, how is this going to relate to the instruction he's given already? As as we'll see, maybe this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, it's a bit, or it feels a bit scattershot to me, sort of one thing right after another. How does, how does this yeah. relate to some of that more lengthy instruction he's been giving up to this point? Yeah, it's really helpful if you take one-liners from Paul, of which today's text is full, and you take a look not only at the rest of First Thessalonians, but also all the other stuff that Paul writes or anything pertinent to it in Holy Scripture. So uh, a phrase like abstain from evil. Uh, go ahead and look at where else does Paul talk about evil? Where does the Bible talk about evil or the evil one? Because what we're getting is really a set of summaries. And the purpose of, the, of writing in this way is to press something home in a very short, distinct, memorable way. You know, I think I, the ancient world had its uses for, you know, tweets, uh, really brief, <laughs> short things, just like we do. Um, he's trying to make sure that by mentioning these last 
several phrases, uh, you have, you know, three or four words in English or Greek that you can keep in mind and uh, remember, okay, uh, this is evil. I should abstain from this. Really simple, really brief, but especially helpful to those who are new in the faith in just the same way that we use generally uh, Luther's small catechism uh, to press home the basics of the faith, uh, the foundations of the faith, uh, to old and to young. I like that. A series of, of tweets from Paul here at the end, just short one-liners, very memorable, a small catechism of sorts. That's that's a good way to think about this, I think. So with that, let's go ahead and read these these short yeah. statements from Paul and, and start digging into them. Again, we're in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, the text for today. Pastor Coons, before we start looking at those individual statements, this is a bit related to what we're talking about. Is there, a, is there an order to these various statements of Paul? Is there, are they connected to one another? Or, I mean, is he just sort of this is everything that I can think here at the end that I also want you to think. What do you think? <laughs> right. He starts with internal dynamics within the congregation, and we'll talk about that, uh, what we now call pastors. There are different names for uh, those folks in the New Testament, but he starts with the relationship between uh, ministers of the Word and the congregation. Then he's got the congregation generically, uh, and there are different groups within the congregation, idle, faint-hearted, weak, uh, all require patience. He's also going to talk about the notion of vengeance among the brothers, whether it's forbidden or not, and then move out more generally to attitudes that are governing not only the congregation, but really the Christians in daily life, such as rejoicing, um, prayer, thanksgiving, um, and then he'll, he'll conclude with this distinction between uh, spirits that are, you know, proclaiming the truth under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but also there are possibly things that are evil out there. Uh, so finally, he's going to wrap up with, as you go through life, you're going to need discernment. And we can talk about that. But there is, a, there is a movement from here's how things should work inside the congregation outward into the world in the same way that, you know, you can recognize intuitively that if things are going well inside the family, generally those family members do better in daily life. Uh, when things are going very poorly inside a congregation, that's not just a problem for the congregation's budget or the pastor's, you know, mental health. It's also a problem for everyone's capacity to live a life of faith in daily life when they're completely separated from other congregation members. So he starts mm -hmm. inside and then moves outward. 
Yeah, and I, I think you, I, I think you're right that you, and you can see that as I was looking at this ahead of time structurally. In verse twelve, you get, "We ask you, brothers." In verse fourteen, you get, "We urge you, brothers." So, so kind of that, you know, a move into a different section, and then. I think, and maybe this isn't exact, but in verse 17, you get this, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So you can see that he is making a progression, even as it it is just one thing right after the other. So it starts there in verses 12 and 13 with what seems to be the relationship between what we would say today, pastors and people. So what do we see there in in verses 12 and 13 with the, the relationship between pastors and people? Well, you can see that anyone that is sort of involved in church work, uh, we, I guess we would say professionally, full-time, there's going to be some kind of tension uh, that occurs between them and those whom they lead. And this is true of really any human organization where there are leaders and there are people who are following, which is natural you know, to human groups. The problem is that the work in which they are engaged in the church is of a different nature than leading a team uh, at your you know, sheet metal business or, or even leading a family. Um, the consequences are always eternal within the church. And so the need for harmony is even more intense than it is in any other group where harmony is so helpful. So he's admonishing them simply because not respecting the leaders uh, is both possible and also very much possibly destructive. So he's admonishing them, you need to respect those who are laboring and are over you in the Lord specifically. So he's not talking about families or something. He's talking about the leaders of the church. Um, because those people, and I think this, there's something a little bit naturally uncomfortable about this. The person who's listening to the leader uh, has to be willing to be admonished. Because that verb and admonish you is not Paul admonishing them. He's saying this is, the, this is what they do. Those who are over you in the Lord admonish you. They, they push you on to other things and, and warn you what to watch out for. Um, that word admonish in English comes from the Latin word to warn. You know, they're, they're going to let you know about dangers. They're going to let you know about what's coming up. They're going to try to guide you in the right way, and you have to be willing to be guided. Um, there's a note very much like this toward the end of Hebrews that's very similar about making the work of those who are over you in the Lord, who give account for your souls, making it a joy to them and not a burden. And there's, there's, a, there's a lightening of one another's burdens, which is very common throughout Paul's letters. You know, in Galatians, we have bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, as if the entire work of Christ is to bear someone else's burdens, which, of course, it is as the sin bearer. He bears burdens that are not his own. We likewise imitate him in bearing the burdens of others. So when you are being admonished or when you are weeping with those who weep or whatever you're doing, you are bearing another's burdens. You do not want to become a burden to others, if at all possible. So you don't want to live in such a way within the congregation that you make the pastor's life a burden. <laughs> mm. But it's very, much, uh, it's very much a possibility, that, and that's why Paul's talking about it. Mm. 
So give us give us that picture then that Paul would be painting here of of what the relationship, the healthy relationship of of harmony, I think you used that word, between pastor and people looks like. I mean, Paul's words are directed to the people, how they are to respect right. their leaders. But I think inherent in the picture, you also see Paul's got in mind what the pastor should be doing as well. So give us both sides of right. that picture. Yeah, I think both sides, it's a great way to put it, both sides are captured in the phrase in verse 13 that talks about esteeming them very highly in love because of their work. And that's really, I think, the key here, because if the pastor is looking at his relationships with the people as a burden, it is almost undoubtedly not because he despises the work, but because he despises or at least does not enjoy all of the interpersonal burdens that come with that work, whether people are recalcitrant or simply prone to making the same error over and over again in their lives, whatever it may be, when you focus on the people and their faults and not the work, which is to lead these very fault-ridden people uh, to heaven through the gospel, when you focus on the people and not the work, there is no end to the burdens that one can feel. Likewise, when you're thinking about your pastor and you're thinking about him as a man with his failings, because the pastor is as fault-ridden as the people, uh, sometimes, speaking from personal experience, I think more so uh, because of the dangers of his work, you know. And when you think about him just as a man with his faults, whatever he does, the habits you don't like, the weight, whatever, when you think about it that way, there, there is no way to avoid finding fault and not esteeming him. You must consider the work, or often we say the office, his duties as a, as a preacher of the word, you must consider the work, not the man. It's not that the man has nothing to do with the work. The pastoral epistles are very clear that the man must be a certain way. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, for instance. But when you consider him in order to esteem him, in order to be at peace among yourselves, it is always best to consider the work, which is the extension of the kingdom of Christ through the gospel of Christ's blood shed and body risen. That's what you consider when you think about other Christians, whether they're pastors or not. You consider the work, you consider the gospel, you consider Christ. And then love and peace become much more possible, much easier to be realized, because we are focused on Christ and not on one another. And that's where Paul ends verse 13, this section, be at peace among yourselves, this matter of considering the office, the work, rather than the individual, that leads then to peace and and still in verse 13, probably between pastor and people, church worker, people, that's still in view there in verse 13, you think? I think so, because I think that the tension here uh, is between uh, the, the worker and the people. The tensions among the people themselves are going to come in, in 14. Okay, so then in verse 14, and I do think you get a, a structural marker of sorts, right? We urge you, brothers, here in verse 14. I, I do, and I just had this as this maybe a passing thought, and there may be nothing to it. In verse 12, he states, we ask you, brothers. In verse 14, we urge you, brothers. I, is, there any, is there any difference there to what he's doing, or is he just throwing some variety into his letter? No, 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 no. He's very intentional, especially about these issues of 
relationships and power dynamics. So it's a very touchy thing to ask. It's a very touchy thing to say, look, the pastor is someone that you need to respect. I mean, almost no pastor would preach a whole sermon about how you need to respect me, you know? So he's very gentle when he's talking about relationships, which are extremely important, such as between a pastor and a congregation. But the power dynamics are big and kind of hard to negotiate. So he says, I ask you, and then gives these reasons why he's asking for peace, for esteem, for respect. When he's dealing with sort of, okay, well, what are your marching orders? What do you need to be doing among one another? He's a little more forceful, perhaps because one is much less likely to deal with the faults of people that you know, the people you sit with, the people you're related to in the congregation. So he's a little stronger when he says, I urge you to do these things among yourselves um, because you're probably less likely to do that. It's easier to find fault with the one guy who's up front than it is with each other, with your various problems. So I urge you to do that uh, because you're going to be a little less likely to do that. So, no, the, the, the word choice is very deliberate because Paul is very attentive to the different power dynamics between a pastor and a congregation or among the congregation. It's also clear here that the congregation is watching out for its own spiritual ways. Uh, that's not just the pastor's responsibility. The congregation also has an interest in how are people living out a life of faith. And you see that in the text itself right there in the very first thing that Paul says in verse 14, in the English, admonish the idol. That word for admonish used there is the same word translated admonish that the pastors were doing in verse 12. So so there's an overlap between the work of the pastor to the people and the work of the people amongst themselves. So in verse 14, Paul lays out, it would seem, these three groups, and three different things are to be done towards these three groups. You've got admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then as a summary, be patient with them all. Pastor Coons, help us draw some, I mean, what's what's Paul getting at? Who are the idle? Who are the faint-hearted? Who are the weak? And what's the various commands that are to be done for each group? Yeah, if you think about this as spiritually... Uh, people have different maladies, different sicknesses, the way they have different bodily maladies or sicknesses. And people's spiritual problems are not always going to be the same all the time, uh, just like their physical problems are not the same at every age, every time. So he's got three different groups of people, and he's saying they have different spiritual problems, uh, and you need to handle them differently. In everything, you need to be patient because people don't get better overnight. And if you go on to Second Thessalonians, you see that there are still many idle among the congregation, and they have a, so to speak, a, a false doctrinal reason for why they're idle and they don't do anything and they don't work. Uh, but, you know, there are going to be ongoing problems in any congregation. Uh, you have to be aware of it, and you were very right to draw attention to the fact that the pastor is admonishing and the people are admonishing. So if the pastor is trying to stir the people up to action uh, to serve the living God, as Paul has it earlier in the letter, 
then the people are also admonishing here specifically those who are kind of loafing around in life. Now, this is not to say that he's not saying, well, you all need to get promotions at work this year. Otherwise, you're not you're not good Christians. What he means is that they are unfruitful in the Lord's work and need to be spurred to uh, the work of the kingdom. Um, they, they, they're thinking of Christianity as a kind of a consumer product, right? I, I bought the product. That's all I need to do. Um, I'm, I'm just consuming the content. That, that, that's what I do. Uh, those are the idol. And like I said, they're not going to go away in Thessalonica, uh, at least not by Second Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Um, the faint-hearted, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 keep going. Keep going. Just, yeah, take us into the, the faint-hearted now. Yeah, the faint-hearted are a little bit different. They're not necessarily being lazy in the, in the work of the kingdom. They are worried about what being in the kingdom actually means, uh, especially with regard to those outside the church. Uh, the reasons for uh, problems within the, Thessalonic, the Thessalonian church are not only internal, they're also because we know from several mentions by Paul that the Thessalonians suffered affliction, quote, from their own countrymen, as the churches, the Christian churches in Judea, suffered from uh, their fellow Judeans. So the faint-hearted are those who are worried about what might be thought of them, what might be done to them, what they might lose because they are Christians. And you want to encourage them. You don't want to say, oh, well, why are you, you're such a, you're a fair weather Christian. You know, did you think this was going to be easy? It's really important here that patience means not that you are lax about what is expected or what needs to happen. Like if you're idle, you need to start working. If you're faint hearted, you need to have your heart strengthened. Change does need to occur. But Paul talks to people more like a coach or an understanding doctor, then he doesn't really carp at them. He's not berating them for their faults. He's trying to help them. So the faint-hearted are to be encouraged, to be built up, to be strengthened, so that they are strengthened in their understanding that Christ is truly king, uh, that he has died and risen for them, uh, that he is coming again to judge the nations, all of these truths that Paul has already proclaimed in First Thessalonians. And so then, likewise, the weak, uh, that's, a, that's a little harder to nail down what's going on there. They could be weak in a variety of ways. So not so much that they are afraid of what might happen to them because they're Christians, but that they are subject to very strong passions or very strong vices. It's, it's not entirely clear um, it's definitely a category of people where, like I said earlier, you don't get better overnight. And um, when you're helping somebody like that, whether it's something that we now call an addiction or anything else, patience is absolutely necessary because people can't figure out everything overnight. And patience models for them uh, the way that the Lord is patient towards them. You know, if you remember Paul talking about this in Romans, God's kindness, his long-suffering, is meant to lead us to repentance. So when you are guiding somebody um, in the, the good way of the Lord, patience is absolutely necessary with them. 
um, they're not going to they're not going to do exactly what, you know, they really need to do with their lives right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in all of this, that that goal of keeping the congregation together is is key, keeping them together right. in repentance and faith. And so patience is the overarching uh, what's the characteristic that's needed yeah. for all of these, yeah. lest you in, in the admonishing or encouraging or helping lest you, you think, okay, I did it once and now I'm done and you didn't do what I right. wanted. So get out of here kind of thing. Right. I mean, this right. is how, that's right. why yeah. patience. Like, like I, that's right. Yeah. Like I, I, and, and, and it's so easy too, because, because we're all kind of trained to be consumers, we expect that, you know, I told you once, what the right thing to do was or what the right answer was. And, and you came back to me two days later and it's like, I never said anything. You have to be patient with people because especially when they have been trained in a way that is unwholesome or unfruitful, you know, it's like, it's like waiting for your plants in the garden to change the direction they're growing in. When you're training them, you have to be very patient with them and gradually get the branch to grow in a direction that's going to be much better for it eventually, it, it's not going to change overnight. And that's that's exactly what Paul's getting at here. So be patient with us here on Sharp Ryan. We're going to take our break here in the middle of the program, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Daily Chapel serves those who serve the Lord to be receivers of the Word and to remember where our true help is found. Hear God's Word read, preached, confessed, and sung in the broadcast of Daily Chapel from the LCMS International Center in St. Louis weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The broadcast of Chapel is underwritten by LCMS International Mission and Ministry to the Armed Forces. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Hi, I'm Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. As we approach Thanksgiving, there is so much to be thankful for, but I'm especially thankful for all of you who volunteer your time and talents in your congregations and in your communities, using the gifts God has given you to share your faith in word and in deed. Thank you for your faithful labor in Christ's name. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Friday, December 13th. We are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz is the Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Kuntz, prior to the break, we were looking at Paul's commands to the congregation in its intercongregational relationship, this matter of patience overarching all. And then as he moves forward into verse 15, he begins talking about not repaying evil for evil, but rather seeking to do good to one another, to everyone. How does how does that relate to what we were just talking about? What's Paul getting at there in verse 15? Well, notice, first of all, that he changes from this notion of having different classes of people who have different sort of spiritual sicknesses, now to saying generally do not repay evil for evil. And that is significant that even two Christians who are strong, who are not faint-hearted, they may insult one another. One may do evil to another. And here, forgiveness, confession and forgiveness are necessary, not vengeance. So it's possible not only for the weak or something to offend, the idle to offend, it's also possible for those who are busy in the Lord and strong to offend even one another. Um, The notion of not repaying evil for evil is meant to build up the congregation because if there, if there comes to be a kind of reckoning of offenses and accounting a book that you keep of what people have done to you, not only will the book always grow more and more and more, and that has its own warping effect on a person's soul, but it is, also the case that when you continue to reckon what has he done to me what did she say to me there is also a kind of blindness that enters into a person that makes it much easier for that person to offend himself even though he believes that the world is constantly or even the church is constantly offending against him Hmm. so not only is patience with one another necessary, but also a foregoing of vengeance. Because if vengeance is let in, vengeance doesn't know how far it wants to go. You know, it's, it's, it's like when James talks about the tongue, and he says that, you know, people can control horses and giant ships, but they can't control their tongues. Isn't this remarkable? And he compares the tongue to a flame that sets the whole world on fire, you know. You, you set a campfire and it spread, and now this entire national park is on fire because you were negligent in this one thing that seemed very small to you. There are dynamics within souls and then also between people that they think they have control over, but they have no idea what they're doing. And one of those, in addition to the tongue, one of those is the desire for and the taking of vengeance. So there is to be no reckoning of debts between one another. Do not repay, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he's covering both the dynamic among the Christians, do good to one another, and to everyone. That is that you go through life as a blessing and not as somebody who is judging whether or not you need to pronounce a curse upon somebody. You are not looking for vengeance in life, even though people do 
do evil to you. So what is what does that seek to do good to one another and to everyone? What is I mean the word in English at least to to do good is a very broad term. So what does Paul have in mind here as the opposite of repaying evil for evil? What does that mean to to do good to one another and then to everyone? Well, the the doing of good to somebody and and in in Greek it's it's honestly even more generic and he says the good just the good, uh, is something that is building up, that is helping, that is blessing another person's life. Um, Something always to notice with Paul, especially when it feels as if his statements are extremely abstract, is to map his advice onto the life of Jesus, which is exactly what he does when he tells the Romans, to imitate Christ, or he tells others elsewhere, especially in Corinth, but also in 1 Thessalonians, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So take the advice and map it onto the life of Christ. And then it becomes a little bit clearer what this looks like to do good to one another and to everyone, even though people are doing evil to you. You can think of the way that Jesus helps people, um, whether or not they are necessarily deserving of help. You can think of Jesus explaining love of the neighbor through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, All of these things are ways whereby we say, okay, I'm not interested in life in figuring out who has offended me and how much and what they deserve because of it. What I am interested in in life is blessing people, in helping them, in encouraging them, um, in giving them Christ. These are the things that I'm interested in. This is what I'm pursuing, which is the, uh, it's a stronger word in Greek than seek, it's pursue. These are the things that I'm running after, is how to bless another person, um, rather than reckoning their offenses against me. So here then, it seems that Paul, he's opening it up a bit more as he says, seek or pursue to do good, not only to one another that is within the congregation, but now to everyone. He's he's widening that focus, as you, you said at the beginning. And he moves into, I think, one of the more familiar parts of this text to many of us. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, ceasing give thanks in all circumstances. Those, again, once those, those quick tweet-like statements that Paul's giving us, very memorable. Maybe the place to start with those is, is the way Paul says, always without ceasing how how do you rejoice always how do you especially pray without ceasing is paul just sort of walking around mumbling things to himself all the time or what, what does that mean <laughs> right 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 i i i think the place to start is to realize that as paul opens up his advice concerning not just the dynamics within the congregation but the christian's life in the world he doesn't say and make sure that you remember that the problem is the world. Mm. In daily life, the things that he's focusing on here in these three things that comprise the will of God for you in Christ Jesus are things that are going on actually within you, actually within you, because he's not requiring that you walk around, you're smiling because you're rejoicing all the time. So you're always smiling. You're never not smiling. Uh, and you're mumbling constantly because you're praying. He doesn't say that. He's talking about things that are going on inside of you. 
And so it's almost more helpful to look at them as, as attitudes or ways of looking at life or ways of thinking about what's going on in daily life um, that are your ways in Christ Jesus. And so th- this is why he's not, you know, mumbling to himself. And joy is not just, you know, feeling happy and sunshiny all the time. But it is receiving life as a gift from the Father's hand. That's why it's specifically in Christ Jesus. This is not just, oh, I really like sunsets, or I really like flowers in mountain meadows, you know. It's that because of who Christ is and what he's done, I look at life differently because I think of it as something that Christ has given me, not only this bodily life, but eternal life, which I enjoy now in him through faith in his name, and which I will enjoy eternally when he comes back in great glory with the trump of the archangel and gathers me and all believers to himself. I now receive all of life as a gift. This also makes not reckoning, you know, faults against oneself, uh, not, you know, grousing because the pastor's sermon wasn't as good as you thought it should be. It's much easier to be kind and encouraging with people when you understand that the will of God in Christ Jesus for you is a life of thanksgiving, is a life of commending everything to the Father. You don't have to walk around mumbling psalms constantly you're simply understanding that the people, the situations, all these things that are put into your life, these are all opportunities, these are gifts, these are things that you can receive, that life is about what you continually receive moment to moment, grace upon grace, through Christ Jesus from the, from the Father. Um, so he's, he's not telling you, uh, yeah, you got to smile all the time and you got to mumble the Psalms. He is telling you that there is cause for joy, there is cause for prayer, and there is cause for thanksgiving in everything that is occurring in you and with you. And that is that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Very, very key to point that out, that this is his will in Christ Jesus. That is where these gifts come from. We've seen this this phrase, the will of God, Paul used it at the very beginning of this instructional section earlier when he was in chapter four, verse three, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. I think he invites us, he's tying some of these things together that he's, he's brought up already. As he moves forward then, again, I think words that are fairly familiar, but perhaps a, a bit difficult to consider. He says, do not quench or extinguish the spirit. How do you, how, what is he talking about? What does it mean to quench or extinguish the spirit? Yeah. Yeah. The spirit is portrayed here as something burning. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to quench, uh, the burning candle. You don't want to extinguish, uh, the, the fire, which is, which is warming and providing. So the, the portrayal of the spirit as fire is familiar from the day of Pentecost in Acts. Uh, but it's also important to see that Paul understands the spirit's work in the church and throughout the world daily as a fire, as something that is, as fire does in the Bible, at the same time, it purifies what is good, and it burns off what is not good. 
It reveals what is wholesome and true, gold and silver refined in the fire, and it burns with unquenchable fire the chaff that must be thrown out. So the spirit is working in this way as fire. What is possible here and against which Paul warns is the idea that the spirit uh, needs to be doused out. And we should not identify the spirit here with just like crazy stuff. This is an error that many Christians make that if something's crazy or really emotional, then it's of the spirit. Because Paul goes on right after this to say that testing, that discernment is necessary. Well, how do I test? How do I know what is good so that I can hold it fast? I compare it to the scriptures. Just west of Thessalonica is Berea. And it was in Berea that when Paul preached, the Christians went in their, well, the new Christians went in their Bibles and they said, does it actually say in here the things that Paul's saying? Is Jesus actually the Christ? Is he the man of sorrows, the suffering servant of whom Isaiah speaks? And said, yes, exactly. So what Paul isn't saying is, well, if it's crazy or emotional, then it's of the Spirit and just let them do whatever they want. He's saying, do not quench the Spirit. Find out that this is of the Spirit by comparing it to the Scriptures. Then you'll know, I'm going to hold on to this, and I'm going to get rid of that. It's also important to say that not everything that is said or done or believed in a church or by someone claiming to be a Christian is necessarily of the Holy Spirit. It all has to be tested. Is it also possible that the—so, I mean, everything I think you've been saying about quenching the Spirit is going to deal especially with the teaching that's happening within the Church. And I think that's quite true, and I think we, we can keep talking about that, especially when it says, do not despise prophecies. But also, are the are the things that Paul's already mentioned in terms of the relationship between pastor and people, the relationship within the congregation, the way the Christian behaves and lives as a Christian in the world at large, would these things also— quench the spirit if, if they don't listen to Paul's admonishments here? Yes, excellent, because what's happening is that teaching always results in life, and life proceeds from a certain kind of teaching. Because I have been taught who Christ Jesus is and what he has done for me, now I know what the will of God is for me in Christ Jesus, my sanctification. So there is no disconnect between the things that are said and the things that are done. Uh, Jesus speaks this way very vividly, especially in Matthew's Gospel, in explaining both Christian faith and Christian life as a matter of trees, that trees just produce a certain kind of fruit, good or bad, if they're good trees or bad trees. Or James talks this way about blessing and cursing, how can you know, a freshwater well produce salt water. How can this possibly be? It must not really be a freshwater well if it's producing salt water. There's no disconnect. So you're totally right. Quenching the spirit has not only to do with the testing of prophecy, to make sure that we have wholesome seed going into the ground. You know, Walther talks this way about pure doctrine. The reason we're so concerned about doctrine is because good seed produces good stuff. <laughs> Bad seed produces bad stuff. It's obvious, but we forget. But since the seed has gone into the ground, then it must necessarily produce good things. And those good things include 
patience, love, uh, blessing, not seeking vengeance, all of those are of the Spirit. You know, if you think about uh, what's often misread as the fruits of the Spirit, with an S on the end of fruit, it's actually, in Ephesians, it's actually the fruit of the Spirit. All of those wonderful things, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of it, the whole list, comes from the truth of the Spirit, which is being proclaimed in the Church. Luther connects these things to in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer when he's talking about God's kingdom, and he, he specifically connects them to the Holy Spirit, that God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace, two things, right? We believe his Holy Word, there's the teaching, and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Those two things combined going together. So thinking again about the teaching, because it does seem that that's where, where Paul really moves more in verse 19. He says, do not despise prophecies. What What's he got in mind there with prophecies? You, know, you, you mentioned some of the crazy stuff that sometimes we yeah. wrongly associate with the Holy Spirit and, and the works that he does still today. Prophecies right. may be one of those things that we get a bit confused here about. What, is, what does Paul mean when he talks about prophecies? Yeah, and it's a word that he uses also in 1 Corinthians 14, um, which concerns Christian worship. So there are two different ideas about this. One is that these are fresh revelations uh, that have come uh, to people in the midst of the worship service, and now they're speaking them out upon the congregation, and they'll, they'll come true in the same way that, you know, Jeremiah predicted the downfall of Jerusalem, okay? Um, that is the view, obviously, of a lot of Christians who usually go under the names Pentecostal or Charismatic. Uh, the other view, which uh, is much better aligned with the way that Paul uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians 14 is that the, this is simply proclamation, okay? This is not that I get a fresh revelation that um, Pastor Apple needs to buy a new car next month in order to please God, but that I have proclaimed the Word of God as we are accustomed to understanding that. That is, I have proclaimed the Scriptures— and what's going on is Paul is saying, do not despise the things that are being proclaimed, not some kind of new stuff that people just figured out or just heard, because the dynamic in the church is not so much that people uh, are despising novelties. It's notable in any church that, that claims to receive constant, ongoing prophecy. People love novelties. They seek after novelties. Paul's not talking about novelties. He's talking about the fact that the danger in people's lives is that they despise things they have already heard and yet have already begun to forget. That they will not persevere in the way that has been laid out before them. That they will not find, ask where the old ways are and walk in them. So he's, he's encouraging them here not to despise the things that are being proclaimed. This, this wraps in really nicely with saying that you want to esteem those who are laboring uh, in the Lord and who are over you in the Lord to esteem them very highly in love for their work. What is their work? Their work is this proclamation. 
Do not quench the spirit by despising the things that these very mortal men are proclaiming among you. So this is what he's talking about, because the danger in a Christian congregation is not uh, that they won't want to seek novelties. Most people want novelty at some level in their lives most of the time. The danger is that they will forget the wholesome and good things that have been taught to them often from their youth, and they'll think that, you know, I've heard it all, or I know it all, or I don't need to be reminded of that, and they'll seek after novelties to their detriment. You know, remember that the very things that Paul himself is saying in this section are not novelties. I'm sure these are things that he's told them before. I'm sure these are things that they have heard before. Um, The problem that God's people generally have in both the Old Testament times and in New Testament times down to today is not a problem of not wanting novelties. It's a problem of forgetting the word of the Lord. And it's probably the novelties that he has in mind when he says test everything, particularly those are the things that need to be tested against what they've heard over and over again. Pastor Kuntz, we have about three minutes left here on the morning. Paul concludes here, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Again, pretty general thoughts, but I I like what you had to say earlier about when we we hear these things, map them onto the life of Jesus, and that's a good way of looking at it. As you you think about those final two statements and and the morning, give us us a, a summary, wrap these things together for us with that three minutes left. Yeah, it's helpful if you realize that the word form in Greek also means shape, which is kind of a more normal word, and it's less abstract. And you can think about different shapes of furniture or cups or cars, different sizes, and realize that people have different preferences for different things. It's very helpful when you understand that the evil one works through various shapes, that he uses different shapes. To some, he comes as an obvious, evil, dark tempter with hoofs. To many, he comes, as Paul says, as an angel of light, clad as an angel of light. That evil takes many, many, many different shapes. Uh, you can tell that it takes different shapes because uh, false, false gods, uh, idols, come in as many different shapes as there are human hearts. Paul is encouraging them that no matter whether the person is idle or faint-hearted or weak, if the person wants vengeance, if the person is dissatisfied, uh, whatever it may be, uh, there are many, many, many different kinds of evil. There's only one Lord. So this last statement, abstain from every form of evil, means that the congregation will commit itself Uh, not only to being against the sins which are not very present in it or or are the problem of only a few insignificant people in the congregation, but that it will set its face against every form of ungodliness and unholiness, Uh, also against those forms that are especially found in it, and that it will instead serve the living God and wait for his Son to appear from heaven. And in doing that, they will wait together. Evil could break them up because they could pursue their own different false gods. Uh, What is good, the pursuit of what is good for one another will unite them. And they will be united under one who is proclaiming good things, the good things of the Lord. And in that way, they will all be together when Christ comes again in great power and glory to gather them and all believers to himself. So abstain from every form of evil 
uh, both unites them uh, and allows them to be ready uh, for Christ to come again, because that's the big picture. That's what Paul is looking at all the time. Christ may come again at any time. Uh, You need to be ready for that, and to be ready, you need to be together. Pastor Adam Kuntz is the is the assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. Pastor Kuntz, thank you for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Paul gives these final instructions here in this section of teaching of 1 Thessalonians to wrap things up, these very memorable tweet-like statements that give to the Thessalonians their life together as a congregation, pastor and people, their life together as a Christian congregation that flows out into the world all under the Word of God, that Word of God that we're studying here on Sharper Iron. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.